So with that in mind, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Text will also be printed for you in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. But this fall, we are going through the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Very specifically, we're going to be looking at the life of David. And the first question that we need to ask, and it's a good question and one that we we really need to start with, is why in the world would we spend any time at all uh, studying, and much less a few months, studying the life of a man who lived 3,000 years ago? Why would we do such a thing? Well, there are lots of reasons, uh, but perhaps most importantly is that he is really, this man named David, that we're going to study this semester or this, the next few months in the fall, he is really important to Christianity. The opening pages of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, remember what it says? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. All throughout the New Testament, you look and you see people that are shouting and crying out, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so this study this fall is for non-Christians who are trying to figure out Christianity, and it's for Christians, because if you want to understand the Bible as a whole, or if you want to understand Christianity, then you have got to unpack this statement, Jesus Christ, the son of David. You've got to deal with that. And to deal with that, we've got to go to the Old Testament. And we've got to look at this man's life. And when we do that, here's what we're going to see in our study this fall of the life of David by way of kind of setting this up. Is yes, we see that the Spirit of God rushed on him and he was anointed as a king. And we're not kings, the last I checked. And so David is different from us in some way. But on the other hand, David is a normal guy just like you and me. There are no miracles. There's no crazy Uh, special effects in the David account. David is a real person. And we're going to see him this fall. We're going to see him working. We're going to see him laughing. We're going to see him dancing and playing music and writing poetry. He writes lots of psalms, as we'll see. We're going to see him fighting and loving and making friends and getting jealous. And we're going to see David blow it big time. And we're going to see him repent and come back to God. David gets depressed. He gets lonely. He gets angry. David at sometimes is at the end of its rope and he's completely exhausted. And David is going to show us this fall what normal, everyday, ordinary Christian Christianity really looks like when it's lived out. So with that in mind, hear the word of God as it is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy and inspired word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to the sacrifice 
come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, tremblings, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together and ask God to come help us through his spirit with this passage this morning. Father, uh, pray that uh, you would be with us this morning and we see the Spirit rushing on David and We pray that the Spirit would rush on us this morning as we sit here. Holy Spirit, come. We need you to uh, till up the hardness of our hearts with your word. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see more clearly. That you would give us ears to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love uh, this season... Uh, fall, and primarily I love it because of the weather change. You're kind of ready for some cooler temperatures, so I love fall for that reason, but I also love fall because it means one thing, college football is back, and there's nothing like a Saturday morning getting something on the big green egg and uh, watching college game day, getting ready for those big games uh, at night. I love the rivalry. I love the competition, I love the drama, I love the upsets. And if you watched college football at all yesterday, uh, and you watched closely, at some point you noticed the offense doing something, and they, they, there's this thing called play action, play action pass. And it's where uh, it appears to be a running play, but it turns out to be a pass play. And so the offense is relying on what's called misdirection. They're trying to get the defense to uh, focus on the wrong thing so that their man would be open down the field and he will go for lots of yards or possibly a touchdown. And you see, it's misdirection, though. 
and it's causing you, the offense is trying to cause you to miss what is most important. And the reason why I begin with that story this morning, this morning is because that's us. We suffer from misdirection, don't we? We tend to focus on the wrong thing and we get tricked and we get fooled and we get duped because we do not see clearly. God's Word is meant to be a lens for us to see more clearly. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's what we get. It's important because it helps us to see more clearly. It helps us to see what God sees. See, this passage this morning is about seeing. Three things we're going to see and learn in this passage. And the first one is that we see despair. If you're a note taker, God sees a king. Secondly, we see the outside, but God sees the heart. And thirdly, we see God sees strength and power and wealth, but God sees obscurity and weakness. So let's look at number one. We see despair, but God sees a king. And so to really bring us up to speed, we plop down right in the middle of 1 Samuel, we need, we need the backstory. We need to, to kind of learn what has happened up to chapter 16. And here it is in a nutshell. God's people, Israel, they want a king because they want to be like all the other nations. They want unity. They want someone to unify them and rally them. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 9, and you can go read this and get into the weeds with it, but basically they select a king. In Samuel, this, this man, and he's a prophet of God, which basically just means that Uh, He speaks on behalf of God. He speaks on behalf of God to the people. And he names this man named Saul the king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, uh, this is the way Saul is described. Saul is a man with great means. He's wealthy. And the second thing we learn about Saul is he is more handsome than all the other men in Israel. And the third thing we learn about him is he is head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And so in a nutshell, he's good looking, he's rich, and he's a man of stature. He's big, he's tall. And so Samuel sees Saul and it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. This is the king. This is the man who's got it all together. And so Saul is selected king. And the people are excited and everyone is thrilled. And again, you can go back and read this, but Saul ends up being a complete train wreck as a king. He's full of pride and self-absorption. He willfully, on more than one occasion, willfully disobeys and does what God tells him not to do. And so God says, okay, I've had enough. I'm removing you as king and I'm rejecting your kingship. And at the end of chapter 15, and if you have your Bible, it would be worth noting and looking at this. If you look at the very last verse of chapter 15, you notice something. Samuel is grieving over this. But who else is grieving? God. God is also grieving over Saul, and that's really important. Samuel's grieving, Saul is grieving as chapter 15 closes. Chapter 16, the scene opens... Look at verse 1, and the Lord says to Samuel, how long, how long, Samuel, will you grieve over Saul? 
Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Samuel is still grieving. But notice who isn't grieving. God is no longer grieving here. And so Samuel, what we see, and here it is, Samuel's grief has moved beyond God's grief. In other words, Samuel is stuck. Samuel is in despair. Why is he in despair? Well, of course he's in despair because he picked Saul, and Saul did not work out and was a train wreck, and he was rejected as king. But almost certainly he is in despair because he's thinking, oh no, the kingdom. God's people wanted this, and this turned out to be a disaster. What's going to happen to God's kingdom now? Will we be more vulnerable to our enemies? Will civil war break out between us? Will the kingdom be lost? You see, when we lose sight of truth, we ever so subtly move into despair, don't we? And God comes to Samuel and he says, there's hope. Rise up. The kingdom is not lost. I have a plan and I'm working out my plan. I'm still in control of my kingdom. Fill your horn with oil and go to Bethlehem because my king is there. Go to Bethlehem. You see it? Samuel, he's focused on the wrong things. Samuel doesn't see what God sees. Samuel sees despair. And God sees a king. God sees his king. And so what? So what do we learn from this? Well, one thing we learn is that, um, very simply put, that in the midst of our lives and in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our despair and fear and in the chaos of the world that we experience, there is reason for us to hope. Listen closely to this. Because this is important. It is right to grieve. It is right for us to lament and to mourn and weep over the brokenness of this world. In fact, I think an argument could be made that as a church universal, uh, we don't do a very good job of lamenting. You see laments all the way through the Psalms. And how many times have you come to a service where all we've done is lament? Not many. And so it's good and right for us to grieve. First Thessalonians says in chapter 4, verse 13, what? As Christians, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. You see, that's the difference. It's right for us to grieve with hope. That's appropriate and good, but it turns to despair all ever so subtly when we say, there is no king. The king is no longer on his throne, or the king is absent. Or he's not paying attention. And God comes to us this morning in the midst of our grief. And the last time I checked, there is grief in this room this morning. There are people that are grieving in lots of different ways. And God comes to us just like he came to Samuel and he says, rise up. Have hope. Go to Bethlehem. Because my king is there. And see, we know because we live this side of the cross and we look back that this ultimately points to who? Another king. Another king in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king, the true David, 
And he comes and he says for us who are experiencing loss this morning, maybe a loss of a family member or experiencing health issues or a broken heart over your children, or maybe you're ready to quit your marriage or you're frustrated with your life, God comes to you and says, rise up, have hope, go to Bethlehem and see my king. See Jesus. The manger was not empty. The king is still on his throne and he's not asleep at the will and there is no sweat on his brow. He's not pacing thinking what in the world is happening to this world and to my people. No, he's working out his plan and his purposes in the world. And do we understand them? No, his ways are not our ways. We don't always understand. But he's on his throne. See the king. Does that mean that your pain will suddenly go away? No. You know what it does mean? It reframes the way you see it, doesn't it? You start to see it in a different way. Secondly, we see the outside. God sees the heart. Look at verse 4. And so Samuel wipes his tears, and he does what God's commanded him to do, and he goes to find the next king. And look at verse 6. You see it again, and he looks, sees, remember, seeing. We see that again pop up. It's the point of the passage. And he looks, and he sees Eliab. And so let me give you a picture of Eliab. Essentially, this is LeBron James. 6'8", 250 pounds, MVP basketball player. But not only does he play basketball, he is a three-sport athlete. He's the quarterback for the University of Bethlehem. And not only is he the quarterback, but he's an all-star pitcher, a Hall of Fame pitcher for the University of Bethlehem as well. Not only that, he is the homecoming king. He's got it all. And Samuel looks at him and says, that's it. This is our guy. Look at verse 6. Surely, this is the Lord's anointed. See, the word surely there shows you that Samuel said this is a no-brainer. This guy's a rock star. And if you notice, though, Eliab is actually what? The image of Saul. He's actually Saul 2.0. Remember Saul, wealthy and rich and tall and handsome. And then God comes, and here's the heart of the passage, verse 7, and does something jaw-dropping. Look at what God says. Do not look on his appearance. Do not look on his height, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees, but the Lord sees and looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so God is looking at Samuel and says, basically, Samuel, you're doing it again. You want another Saul. Samuel, you still do not see like I see. Because you're focusing, you're being misdirected, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're looking at the outside. But I am looking on the inside. And by doing that, you're totally missing it. And so God comes this morning and says that we are being duped and tricked if that's all we focus on is the outside appearance in a person's image. And I don't know about you, but this is pretty sobering, 
It should be. It should hit us right between the eyes this morning. Why? Because we live in a culture and in a world that is completely obsessed over the top with beauty and appearance and image. Think about the cover of every magazine you see in the checkout aisle at the grocery store. The most beautiful people in the world. Celebrities, picture-perfect celebrities that have been photoshopped so that they look perfected on the cover of that magazine. Think about the money that we spend on beauty and products and outward appearance and clothes and shoes and all sorts of treatments and things. Think about social media. Instagram, for example. People will take multiple selfies of themselves in order to get the perfect one that can be posted for the world to see because we are obsessed with image. How often when you think about social media, no one ever takes a picture of them being sad or lonely or really disappointed or someone fighting with their wife or uh, children fighting with their parents and posting that on social media. You never see that. No, because we got to put out there and we got to portray to the world that we have our best life ever. And so it's always of the greatest things. Those are what we are posting on social media. Why? Because you see, we're seeing the wrong things. And it affects us. It affects us in ways that we don't even realize because we start to size people up and measure them according to the way they look on the outside. I used to say this to students, and maybe you're here this morning and you're single and you're looking to date or want to date, but I used to say, uh, and it happens all the time, we did it. When you walk into a room of ten people of the opposite sex, you rule out nine out of ten of them in a blink of an eye based on what? Based on how they look on the outside based on their image, their body type, or their appearance. And God comes to us and he says, you don't see like I see. You focus on what the world prizes. and I focus on the heart. God comes and says, I see character. I see below the surface. Don't be duped by charisma and charm and the outside of the package. We need to be careful. Let me say this because it needs to be said. God is not anti-beauty because God's beautiful. So God's very pro-beauty. We see it with David. Look, David was, had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. He had rosy cheeks. And so God, don't hear me say God is against beauty. God just is saying that he sees it differently than we do. We idolize it. God says, I see the heart. Thirdly, And finally, this morning, we see strength and power and wealth, and God sees weakness and obscurity. And so here's the scene. Samuel's at Jesse's house, and it's basically a feast of of some sorts, and he has LeBron James in front of him. Okay, 6'8", Eliab, 6'8", 250, standing, and Samuel is like a kid in a candy shop. He's so excited. He's chomping at the bit. He's thinking, man, this was easy. This is my guy. This is a no-brainer. And look at what God says. Nah. Not him. And so Samuel is thinking, well, okay, you know, that's a little disappointing. 
because I thought we had a shoe in here, but no. Uh, and so Jesse's got other sons, and so let's just start the parade. And, and essentially, this is a beauty pageant. It's a beauty parade. And so one by one, they start coming out. Look at verse 8 through verse 10. The next son, Abinadab. God says, no. Third time's a charm. No. 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 On down the line, seven of his sons come out, and God says, no. They're all rejected as the next king. And so we're talking AAU team, okay? We're talking all-stars, first-round draft picks. God says, no. And so Samuel is thinking, surely, sorry about that. Um, Samuel is thinking, I've got the wrong address. I, I mean, are you Jesse? I've got the wrong house. Because God told me to come here and to find the next king. And, and then, you know, and Jesse says, no, you've got the right house. And so the next question would be just like we would say, okay, so... Do you have any other sons? And look at what Jesse says. Well, actually, there is another. He, he's the youngest. And he's out in the fields with the sheep and with the animals. And you see that word, the youngest there, if we were to dig down deeper into that word, it actually means runt. It was actually an insult. And if you notice, if you look at the narrative, he doesn't even call his younger son... By name, he just says the runt. He's so insignificant in his family that he's out doing the chores and tending the sheep. The picture is that Samuel comes to the house and it's like Jesse leans down to his little son and he says, run along now, young one. Run along. We've got some really important business that we're going to attend to that does not pertain to you. Go out on into the field where you belong and when you're needed, we'll call you. And so he responds, and look at what he says. He goes, yeah, there is the young one in the field, but surely you don't want him. That is what he's saying. And that young one in the field is David. And friends, he is so obscure. Did you notice that he's not even mentioned by name in the narrative until the very end of verse 13? It never even occurred to his father that he could be the next king. David... Is his, David's own father has essentially forgotten him. And so Samuel says, go get him. Bring him. We're not going to sit down and continue what we're doing until you bring in the youngest. And so Jesse goes out in the field and he finds him and he brings in the runt of the family. And God says, that's him. That's the king. That's the next king. And look at verse 13. I love this. The author makes a point to draw your attention to this in verse 13. He does that. And so David is anointed in the midst of his brothers. And so five-star recruits, AAU team, first-round draft picks on this side, the nobody, the runt, the forgotten loser that smells like sheep on this side. And God says, first round draft picks, nah. I want the nobody. 
He's my king. And before we just kind of move through that, that's crazy. Nobody does this. The people that were witnessing this had to be thinking, this is an episode of Impractical Jokers. This cannot be happening. This is absurd. This scrawny little kid is going to be our king. But you know what? That's actually the beauty of Christianity, isn't it? Think about it. Friends, if Samuel would have chosen Eliab, the MVP, we wouldn't have a prayer. We would be in trouble. Because that would mean that you and I would have to live up to it. And that would make Christianity just like every other religion in the world where you've got to be good enough in order for God to accept you. But Christianity comes and it is good news because it says God doesn't choose the powerful, the rich, and the strong, and the privileged. But he always chooses the runts. Read the Bible. It's there. He always chooses the runts and the bench warmers and the losers and the nobodies of the world. God chooses to build his kingdom through runts. And that is good news for people like us who feel inconsequential. Who often feel insignificant and overlooked and insecure. But there's also some bad news here for us, isn't there? And the bad news is this. That this over-the-mountain community and over-the-mountain Birmingham, it is actually tailor-made to keep you away from Jesus. It's actually tailor-made to keep you away from the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because often, if I'm honest, we don't have room for losers and bench warmers and nobodies in our lives. We make plenty of room for the powerful and the rich and the wealthy and the strong and the privileged. And the problem with that is it's totally contrary to the kingdom of God. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1? God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things to shame the strong. Chooses the lowly and the despised things. If you look at verse 13 again, it says that David has anointed the king. And the entire Bible is about who? entire Bible is about Jesus, right? Every story whispers his name. And so the Old Testament points us forward to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself. And so what that means is that David is a shadow of the king, the true king, Jesus himself. And that's exactly what we see when we look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, because you see, Jesus, centuries later, was born in a town called Bethlehem, which is where our story is set in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And like David, you know who else was thrown out among the sheep on that starry night? Among the animals? It was Jesus. And in John chapter 1, we see that when Jesus entered, entered into the world and started his ministry, that his own people received him not, that no one recognized him as the king. 
Isaiah 53, he had no beauty, he had no majesty that we should desire him. You see, the true king and the savior was right before their face and every person missed it. Why? Because they were looking for the Iliads. They were looking for the strong and the handsome and the rich. And because they focused on the wrong thing, the result was they missed the absurd reality that the one they needed the most the only one that can truly save them was this poor, weak, overlooked man named Jesus. And you see, if we're ever going to see clearly, if we're ever going to stop being misdirected, then we have to realize, friends, that life and fulfillment is found here in Jesus. Life is found in this obscure man, this suffering servant Savior. And listen, that might not be the Savior that we want. But boy, is it the Savior that we need. Because you see, this King, this King Jesus is the King who makes himself nothing. So that his people and his nobodies that follow him can actually be something. This King is the one who makes himself ugly by hanging on a cross so that you and I could be made more beautiful. Friends, this King, this Jesus, is your only hope. This is our fastball. This is the only bullet in our gun. It's a naked Jewish man hanging on a cross. That is all we've got, and that is who we are extending to the world as Christians and as Faith Presbyterian Church. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for choosing to work through weak people like us. Thank you that you don't only choose uh, MVPs. And would you help us this morning to see more clearly? Forgive us for only seeing what is impressive and overlooking weak and despised things. And we pray now and ask you to help us to feed on the greater son, uh, or the, uh, the greater David. Jesus himself, help us in Jesus' name, amen.